0: Welcome to the Happen to Your Career podcast. It is episode 78 already. Hey there. What's that you say? You're still trying to narrow down what it is that you want to be doing for work? Okay. All right. I see how you are. Then here's what I think you should do. I think you should text HTYC to 38470. That's HTYC to 38470 Or visit figureitout.co. That's figureitout.co. And we'll get you enrolled in our eight day course. It helps you do exactly that. All right.
1: Start doing the work today you want to be doing tomorrow. If this is what I want to do eventually, I might as well just start now.
0: This is Happen to Your Career. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and then make it happen. Whether you're looking to do your own thing or find your dream job, you've come to the right place. I'm Scott Barlow. Hey, HTYCers, it's Scott, and I am back with a whole bunch more for you. I think you're going to love this episode. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I've got to tell you a little bit about this guy. This guy, uh, and, and I'll tell you his name in just a second here, but he has done some pretty interesting things. He's he's kind of a systems-based, um, or actually I'd say systems-obsessed entrepreneur, uh, he's in marketing. He is, he's very much a philosopher. You're going to kind of see that throughout the, the episode. I don't know if he calls himself that necessarily, but uh, very much comes across. So you know, his real passion is, is helping other entrepreneurs, authors, and CEOs build internal systems and be able to grow their marketing. So he, he's worked on the Tropical MBA podcast He's done community management for a top mastermind forum. He's done quite a few other things, but he's also got this book coming out. It's called The End of Jobs, How a Section of the Middle Class Getting Rich. Oh, yeah, and the guy speaks Portuguese. So his name is Taylor Pearson, and I got to talk with him about quite a few pretty interesting topics. I think things that are very relevant to you and you absolutely have to know if you're going to be doing any kind of work that isn't on a factory floor or something like that in these next 10 years. So we talk a little bit about what emergent work is. We talk, And if you're wondering, you've got to listen to this episode. We talk a little bit about how work is changed over the course of the last 10 years and how it's going to change in the future and what some of that thought work actually looks like and how to get started in doing those types of things. So this is going to be a fun one. Buckle up. Get ready for the ride. Bong dia, Taylor Pearson. All right, I have with me Taylor Pearson, and I am... Way excited to chat with you about. Uh, actually, we're gonna we're gonna go all over the place a little bit today because <laughs> you you and I had you had emailed me initially and suggested a, a couple of different topics for for the podcast, and then you know just before we hit the hit the record button here, then you were you were talking about uh, more in depth on a couple of those topics, and it got me really excited. So first of all, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here, Scott. Appreciate it. And, and Taylor,
0: um, before we before we get into a couple of these topics, I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, your story because you've had some interesting experiences uh, throughout your life, and then you've got this book coming out. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but tell me about how you came to speak Portuguese first.
1: Oh, well, um, so I did a study abroad when I was in college in Argentina, um, which of course is uh, Spanish speaking, but I took a trip while I was there for one week and I went up to uh, Rio in Brazil and, you know, it was everything you thought it would be, right? Amazing beaches and uh, beautiful weather and really generous people and amazing food and so I came back and I finished, uh, I finished university. I finished college, um, and decided like I was going to do whatever it took to get to Brazil. And so I was freelancing as a medical interpreter, uh, and f- through a friend of a friend, uh, met a guy who ran an English school in Brazil, and hooked up with him and ended up living with him for almost a year in Brazil and taught classes at his English school in the mornings at nights and then was uh, studying and working on other projects in between and that was kind of how I picked up Portuguese.
0: Really? That is that's very cool.
1: So how long ago was this? This was 2012. 2011-2012, 2000. yeah.
0: Very cool. And you've done a whole bunch of stuff since that point too. Um, I can I can already tell we did not book enough time for <laughs> we should have booked like three hours for, for this conversation. I can tell that this is going to be a good one. Turn it into
1: a Joe Rogan episode. Yeah, no
0: <laughs> okay. So from there, I'm curious how you ended up making the move to where you're at. You know, what are some of those, what are some of those key events that, uh, that took place here? Because you've worked with the tropical MBA podcast. Uh, you've done, yeah, you know, some community management type stuff. You have, um,
1: you've done a little bit of
0: marketing. Uh, I'd say even philosophy.
1: Yeah, I get that sometimes. I I haven't deliberately set out to do philosophy, but <laughs> apparently I get a uh, I get categorized that way. Well, um,
0: that's how it works, I guess.
1: So yeah, I guess I can pick it up from Brazil. I was in Brazil, and I realized pretty quickly that I love Brazil, and uh, I love travel and that experience. Um, But I wasn't a big fan of teaching English. Um, I didn't think I was particularly good at it, to be honest. uh, And I didn't particularly enjoy it. So in between teaching English classes, I realized that uh, if I could teach myself marketing and specifically online marketing, that that would open up a whole host of new opportunities. That that was a growing industry and that I could effectively do it from anywhere. Um, So in between Portuguese classes or uh, English classes, I was... Um, learning Portuguese, but also learning online marketing. And I set up a uh, network of stores and content sites selling advertising about uh, kitchen furniture. And so that was kind of my first venture. And I realized pretty quickly that that wasn't a sustainable thing to do, that uh, the kitchen furniture industry, not only did I not really know that much about it, but the, the business model I had behind it wasn't very good. But I was able to leverage... That experience into some more interesting opportunities, and one of those was a project management position. Um, when I left Brazil, I moved back to the U.S. and cold-called uh, about 20 marketing agencies, and basically said, "Look, um, you know, I know how to do websites. I know how to do some search engine marketing, some online marketing. Um, you know, here's my portfolio of sites. This is what I built, and um, I'll come work with you." you know, on your clients to do this kind of work. And so I got into that um, and was a project manager for about a year at a web agency. um, And that turned into a position with, you mentioned the Tropical MBA guys who run um, a podcast and a community site. And then they also have an e-commerce business. So they sell um, hospitality equipment, uh, business to business, primarily valet parking podiums. So like those big black boxes you see out front, if you valet your car yeah. and also uh, portable bars, like you would have at a, a wedding, like people roll out the bars and they fold them down and they serve and then like roll them back up at the end of the night. So, um, I started working with them. I took over their e-commerce, uh, stores and was managing the marketing and sales for those. Um, and that was kind of what got me into the start of the book, which is I was hanging out with them and I was hanging out with um, their friends in this community of entrepreneurs um, which they have in a in a location independent entrepreneur forum mm-hmm. um, and that was kind of the the genesis of everything I started understanding entrepreneurship um, and what it meant to be an entrepreneur and then have since gone on and uh, now do some commerce, uh, consulting around the same stuff in terms of e-commerce, uh, and also some kind of coaching consulting and habits and systems, uh, and started working on this book.
0: Okay. Well, all of that, of course, begs one question. Why kitchen furniture? <laughs> how,
1: did you, how did you choose that? Uh, so I used to read, I had no, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, um, and I was like, okay, well, I need to you know find something profitable, right? So I figured yeah, out something yeah, yeah. profitable. And at the time, um, there was kind of this uh, opportunity, this arbitrage opportunity basically to use the Google keyword tool, which yes. will let you go in and see um, how many times a certain word is getting searched on Google, and then it will let you see how much advertisers are bidding on that word. And then I developed a process, for judging the competition. So basically, I was looking for an industry which was profitable um, in the sense that advertisers were paying a lot, um, that was searched fairly frequently. So, like a lot of people were going and looking for information about it, uh, and that the competition was relatively low. So, this like kind of nexus of like where are people gonna pay me a fair number of advertising dollars? Um, and I'm going to get a lot of eyeballs and it's not going to be that competitive. And so I went through i mean, hundreds, if not thousands of like brainstorming, like writing down everything I could think of. Uh, and kitchen furniture was just like far and away the most uh, opportune, like opportunistic combination of those three that I found.
0: So that's so interesting because, uh, I mean, I was jokingly asking the question a little bit, but it is really interesting that... Uh, you were looking from that opportunistic point of view, but then I think I heard you say too, as you're, as you're telling a little bit about your story and how you got to here. Um, I decided I didn't know anything about that and decided that, I you know, wanted to do something different. So looking back, you know, would you, would you do that again? Um, and if so, you know, why or what what would you recommend people who are in that in that situation? Because we get, I mean, I get emails all the time from people who are like, "Hey, I want to do the most profitable thing." Or I get even more emails from, since this is sort of what our business is about. Yeah, you know, uh, hey, I want to do something that uh, that I love, but I also want to to make money. And and those don't always people feel like mesh together very well.
1: They don't. I think, uh, I think part of it's definitely personal DNA. I like got, I have friends who like, I call them like the spreadsheet guys. Like yeah. they can just like sit down and like, if the opportunity like works out in a spreadsheet and the margins are good, like it doesn't like, it can be, you know, like adult diapers. It just doesn't matter. Like, uh, they just love the kind of act of it. I'm not so much that way. I definitely have to be, uh, interested in order to sustain it. Um, at the same time, I would go back and I would probably do that again. I think one thing I've definitely um, made the mistake of in the past um, is like waiting for the perfect opportunity mm-hmm. um, and passing on good opportunities. And so at the time, it wasn't really clear to me what the, what I you know really wanted to do, but it was clear that like that was a step in the right direction. It's like okay, well, if I figure out this online marketing stuff. Um, that's going to open a lot of new doors for me. And, you know, in much the same way, like, that's how I ended up this book project um, is, you know, I looked at this and it it looked like a good opportunity. You know, if I do a really good job on this project and I write a good book and I market the book well, like, that's going to open a lot of opportunities for me. And so I I tend to think about those kind of decisions more as um, what's going to create more opportunities and something that I enjoy doing as opposed to framing it up as, like, like this is the one thing, and once I find it, everything will be good forever
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that is um <laughs> that is something everybody well,, not everybody, but a lot of people have a tendency to think or fall to, even if it is not intentionally that hey, if I find this one thing, so so I love what you said in terms of, hey, don't pass up a don't pass up a really good opportunity for the perfect one that might never be there because then you're never going to, I mean, you're probably never going to do anything. Right.
1: Yeah. And I, it's, you know, it's always tricky. Like there's, it's hard to parse it out. Like, so is this a good opportunity or is this a great opportunity? Um, but I guess one thing I have found over and over is that, um, if you have a bias for action, like opportunities tend to present themselves. Mm. Um, that in, in the act of pursuing some goal, like new opportunities will arise. And that's, that's happened for me over and over.
0: We had, uh, and I love what you're talking about. I I totally agree with that. Do do you know Richie Norton? No, I don't. Really, really, really nice guy. Um, we had him on the show and one thing that he said that you made me think of was, uh, he started talking about the magic of motion. And I, and I think that's what I hear you saying in terms of, Hey, if you have that bias for action, like opportunities are going to find you more often than not, um, as opposed to just you finding opportunities. So that that's very, very cool. Um, I, I know we only have a limited period of time here, so I want to get into some of this, this stuff. First of all, thanks a little bit for, or thanks for a little bit sharing your story. Um, I think that helps set us up really well, but then you've got all of these really interesting things in the book that I, I, I don't even know if we're going to be able to get to half of them. So people, well, I mean, that'll actually set it up really well. People
1: have to go buy the book. Right. But let's, uh, let's talk about that. I didn't even, I didn't even have to pay you for that one. thank you, know, Scott. I know. <laughs> uh, We'll send you the invoice. Don't worry. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. So thing number one here, um, you talk about you talk about the subject of, I can't remember if you call it knowledge work or if you call it uh, something else, but this, this thought intensive type work. And I want to get into how the, how the landscape has changed a little bit and what it's like right now and what, uh, what you feel it'll be in the, in the future. Um, and, and what that looks like. So first of all, tell me, tell me a little bit about your, your philosophy on that.
1: So uh, I discovered this, I was doing some management consulting, um, and there's a framework that was developed by a guy named Dave Snowden, um, and he published it in the Harvard Business Review maybe five years or so, and he's been consulting on it ever since, called the Kinevin Framework. And it's C Y N E F I N. It's a I think it's a Scottish word or a Welsh word. Um, And he basically categorizes management and work into these four quadrants, uh, simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic. Um, And what I realized looking at his framework for management was this was very much true of how work is evolving um, over time and how specifically it's evolved in the last 200 years. So, if you go back 200 years ago, kind of like the dawn of the industrial age, um, most work is something you would categorize as simple work. It was work that was distilled down into best practices. So, yeah. think about this like putting together like IKEA furniture. Like, there's a correct and an incorrect way to put together IKEA furniture, and they put, they give you the, a uh, pamphlet with exactly what the correct directions are and they put it in images. So it works in every language and you just follow the directions and you, you know, you put together the coffee table. Um, and this is like, this is very much how factory work is. Um, this is kind of the nature of industrial work. Uh, and then over the course of the 20th century, we had this um, knowledge work revolution and work started to move from simple into complicated um, and it started to move from best practice into good practice. Or another way to say this is from algorithmic into heuristic. And kind of what all that is saying is that there's necessarily one way to do it, but there are like some good frameworks and clearly defined guidelines about how to do it. So if someone is asking um, asking you ask someone to put together a marketing report, they might give you some defined guidelines like well, look, it needs to be 10 pages. It needs to cover these five topics. On each of those topics, it needs to have three important points. um, And then it needs to have three takeaways at the bottom um, so that someone finishes it and they know what the next steps to do are. So there's not a necessarily perfectly correct way to do that, right? Like there's different ways you could approach that. You could pick five different topics, but there's kind of this defined good practice around writing a marketing report. Um, And what started to happen now... And what the book is about is this evolution from complicated into complex work, which is uh, from good practice into emergent practice. And that the rules aren't even, the boundaries aren't even clearly defined, that the work is not operating within a loosely defined set of boundaries, but figuring out what the boundaries are at all. So, you know, if we go back to the marketing report example, it's like, you know, do we even need to write a marketing report? Like, does our industry read marketing reports or is that a waste of time? And, you know, if we do have to write the marketing report, like what is the, what is the tone of the marketing report? Like if someone reads this and they call our sales team, is there going to be congruence between the marketing report and our sales team or is it going to sound like two totally different people wrote that? Um, and like where in our website and the, like the user flow should this go? Or like, should we write a marketing report for an industry we're already operating in? Or is this something we should do for a new industry? And like, how does that impact the bottom line? And all like these questions, there's no right answer. Um, And there's really like, you can have some general guidelines, maybe some ideas, but the only way to figure this out is to like, just go test and probe um, and discover what that best practice is in your very, very particular industry. And increasingly that's the work that is uh, rewarded by the economy. And that's, um, that's kind of the way I, I lay out that framework. I hope that made sense.
0: Yeah. I was thinking, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard the term emergent practice before, uh, before you said it, but, uh, this is, as you're, as you're talking, I'm wondering how much the industrialization era and even some of the byproducts that are still going on some of the I don't know, you can look at it as good or bad or whatever, because I mean it wasn't wasn't a terrible era or anything like that, but it's definitely different. Now, how much that has incapacitated us and in expectations of some of this different type of work?
1: We're gonna we're gonna yeah. test
0: your philosophy side, I guess, not intentionally,
1: but <laughs> Yeah, and uh, uh I, I tend to err towards the philosophy side, yeah. so you'll you'll play to my strings if we, you go that way. Perfect. Totally um, set that up. So I think uh, the way I think about it at least is in terms of like, you know, whether it's good or bad is because something was, I think there's this natural capacity, both in us as humans and as a, a species, like we always want to be growing and moving forward. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of, you know, one thing I've had trouble with, and I know a lot of people in our generation have trouble with is the ambitions or the desires of our parents aren't ones that we share, that like we want something more. Um, and I, I think sometimes that gets branded as like, um, being ungrateful, but I think that's like a very natural process They're like you always, um, you always want more and you always want ambition. And that's like, you know, kind of the story of, uh, humanity and civilization. Um, sure. but as it relates to industrialization, I think, um, I think in a lot of ways it does play against us. Um, a lot of the people I hang out with now are entrepreneurs and in a way I don't relate to them because... Many of them grew up um, around entrepreneurs, either their parents were entrepreneurs, um, or they, you know, their friend's dad was an entrepreneur, and they kind of saw that growing up. Um, and that wasn't my experience at all. I, my parents work um, like very traditional jobs there in healthcare, which is not a uh, forward-thinking entrepreneurial industry. It's very old school, um, and so there was a lot, and there still is a lot of kind of mindset changes around that. And I think, um, you know, one of the things is this transition from complicated to complex work that we're constantly seeking out um, a a best or a good practice um, when the valuable work is actually figuring out what that is. It's it's figuring out the emergent practice, um, the complex scenario, as opposed to, you know, just researching what someone else has done before.
0: Well, I'd say that from the and I'll phrase this up a little bit because we've got, you know, our listeners, we've got every single one of them that is in a situation, work situation that they don't want to be in forever. And we've got um, a whole bunch of them that are looking at starting their own thing, whether now or in the future. And then we've also got other types of people that want to be in work that actually matters to them and also work that is, I'm going to say, more fulfilling, just to use, you know, a buzzword for a second. But, uh, but almost all of that, you know, as I talk to people and as I get emails and stuff, nobody wants this simple work. And what I was really surprised about is in, you know, I certainly, I think people that are attracted to this show are probably a certain type of people. They're, they're very much what you described. Um, they are, they want more in, in a variety of different ways. And these, these folks all describe, I want more complex work or what what I'm now thinking about is this, uh, you know, emergent practice type, uh, type work. Um, so I guess my, my question for you then is what, and what, how do, what are some of the specific things I need to think about differently in order to adjust to that? Cause I feel like you're telling me, Hey, I've already gone through this, this type of transition because I came from this background where, you know, I wasn't brought up to think this way and now I'm buried in the entrepreneurship world and it's polar opposite of this to some degree. So what are the mindset changes that I need to go through if I'm interested in making that type of transition too, and and starting to do my own thing or even starting to do more complex work?
1: I guess in terms of the mindset shift that uh, – well, let me answer that question another way, which sure. is like how do you – how, what are the actions taken to acquire that mindset shift And uh, instead of trying to articulate abstractly what the mindset shift is? Sure, sure. Um, I think it, it is difficult in the sense that it's, it was difficult and is difficult for me because um, even entrepreneurs – can in some ways be very hesitant to pay people or to hire people to work with people, to do, um, complex work because it is, it is by its nature perceived as very risky. Uh Um, it's not clearly defined. Um, and so I think there's going to be, are there are paths that are emerging for people to learn to do that complex work? Um, And the two I talk about in the book and the two I've seen the most are one is apprenticeships. Um, and this was very much my story. I went and worked with, uh, an entrepreneurial company, two entrepreneurial companies for three years and basically made the deal with them that, you know, I'm, I know I could go somewhere else. I could have gone to a fortune 500 company or a large corporation and, um, negotiated for a higher salary and better benefits, um, and kind of some of those things, but instead I said, well, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll cut you guys a better deal. But like the flip side of that is like, I get to run it. Um, and you yeah. have to show me, like, you got to show me all the dirty details. Like you got to show me how this works hmm. because I want to figure it out. Um, and so I think that's one way to do it is to go to an entrepreneur or someone, um, someone that's in the position you want to be in. If you look three to five years down the road for yourself, um, who do you see and how can you go cut a deal with them? Um, to learn their skills, to see, to kind of understand their mindset, right? Like how can you, you know, nothing works better for me for mindset shifts than just hanging out with people that have better mindsets um, or mindsets that I want to emulate. Um, so I think that's one way. And then the other way I've seen people kind of make that transition is um, stair-stepping, which is, can you start taking small risks on the side that don't necessarily endanger you know, if, um, you know, you have a family, you have a mortgage. Don't put those things at risk. Um, and I know uh, you started this show as kind of a, a side hustle, stair step uh, gig, but it was a way for you to start working on um, something that was more in line with maybe what you saw for yourself. And I, the book for me is, is very much that. It's look, working on something that's more in line with what I see for myself in a way that doesn't necessarily like bet the farm. I
0: that is first of all just i'll simply acknowledge how cool or amazing or insert your adjective here that you can just do that um particularly if you're in the in the US but many other countries too it's still very easy to Just simply start doing those types of things to some degree and going to get those types of experiences that happen to be more in line with what it is that you want. So, acknowledging that and moving on. Let me cut back in here for a second. I want you to meet Tracy.
1: I'm Tracy and I'm from San Diego. I am a microbiology lab supervisor at a medical device and diagnostics company here in town.
0: Before Tracy found our eight day figure it out course, Here's what life was like for her.
1: I was drowning in debt and seriously struggling to find a way out of it. I've got student loans (laughs) from the late 90s that I'm trying to pay down, as well as a car loan.
0: Okay, now you might be thinking, what does debt have to do with Tracy's career? And what does any of this have to do with this eight-day figured-out course?
1: And this course really helped me to gain a lot of clarity around what was important to me and helped me to see possibilities beyond my current situation. So with that, I've actually started a small virtual assistant business on the side, and I have been able to seriously accelerate my debt repayment plan. I will be completely debt-free in just over two years from now.
0: Wow. Congratulations, Tracy. We love hearing stories just like that one. Now, if you want that type of clarity that can help you move forward in your life, here's what you can do. Just text HTYC to 38470, HTYC to 38470, or just visit figureitout.co. That's figureitout.co. Tell me a little bit more about, about the book and the, and the concept. And I know we're already starting to dig into some of it, but first of all, what's the name of the book? Because we haven't even talked about that yet.
1: All right, uh, let's, let's, so, let's get there. I want to get there. The, the name of the book is The End of Jobs. Um, and jobs I use in this context is kind of this uh, this in, this death we're seeing to simple and complicated work, and that what's happening is uh, technology and globalization are driving the simple and the complicated work either into software or overseas, and that the competition for that kind of work is getting steeper and steeper at the same time as it's getting less and less profitable. Whereas the complex work, the entrepreneurial work is, as you just said, more accessible than ever. Um, and at the same time, it's more profitable than ever. And I believe safer than ever that the people who acquire set around doing um, the complex entrepreneurial work um, are going to be in a safer position than the people doing complicated work are five, 10 years from now.
0: So tell me about safer. What do you mean when you say safer? Cause I think that brings a whole bunch safer. That word brings a whole bunch of emotions to mind for people. Um, but what do you particularly mean when you say that?
1: It does bring a bunch of emotions. I think the, the way I think about it and the way I talk about it in the book is, um, real risk and perceived risk. Um, and actually, I had a really interesting story that kind of uh, illustrated this for me. There was a guy, and he was speaking about, um, he was a veteran. He had served in Iraq in the U.S. military. Um, and so part of his tour there, his role there, was he would go out and he would do these um, patrols or reconnaissance missions around uh, particularly dangerous areas. Yes. Um, and he was kind of describing, like, the the emotion and what it felt like before um, getting out and doing uh, one of these tours, which is obviously like a very, very dangerous activity. Uh, he's like people with guns that are not happy with his presence there are going to be there. Um, And then he described the same, uh, described a similar, like in his off time while he was doing this, he was writing, uh, he was starting a business. He was writing um, blog posts. About this project he was working on uh, at the time he was writing a book. Um, And so the way he talked about it was he remembers before he hit publish uh, on that blog post for the first time, the sensation and the emotion of fear was more profound than any time he'd ever gone out in a Humvee uh, driving around Iraq. Um, And I thought that that was so interesting and poignant in the sense that. the way we're wired up to perceive fear is very much in line with this kind of evolutionary biological narrative, which is if, if you're in a tribe of 50 people and you do something, you take a risk or something that seems risky and you do something embarrassing publicly, like you write a, a bad blog post or whatever it is you do in the tree, you say something silly to the tribal leader, that has real implications, on your safety in a world where you only know 50 people for your whole life and you depend on all of them for your livelihood. Um, In the world we live in, that has no implications on your safety. Um, You know, publishing a bad blog post will emotionally feel dangerous, um, but for all practical reasons compared, you know, with... Going out on a reconnaissance mission in uh, hostile territory is like, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it is laughable, like yeah, the yeah. the idea of comparing those two. But emotionally, like you don't recognize that, right? Like it feels uh, scary or scarier. Um, and so I think the scary work in that emotional sense um, that feels terrifying that we perceive as being very risky um, is also the more valuable work because it's the work. Fewer people are willing to do because it does feel so scary.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I've heard I've heard it, it from a few different people, but it's always resonated with me. And I can't remember where I heard it first, but the the simple concept of the and I think maybe it was framed up in terms of conversations, but I think it applies to anything, just like you're talking about. But the concept of hey, the more scary or challenging or even conflict or things that that make you scared type conversations you're willing to have mm-hmm. then the uh, <laughs> the higher you're probably going to get paid in whatever it is that you do and and yeah you know, that's similar similar philosophy to what uh, what you're talking about but I really believe that to be true um, and, and so you're calling this the the difference between um, the perceived, like the perceived fears or the, or the real fears?
1: Yeah. Real, risk and, real risk, risk and perceived risk. Okay. And, uh, one way I'll, I'll quote, uh, Seth Godin who says this, which is, uh, if you can do something that is safe, but feels risky, you gain a significant advantage in the marketplace. Um, and that, you know, that's exactly what I'm talking about.
0: Mm, okay. All right. I'm right there with you. This is, this is great. Um, I interrupted you though. You were, you were on a roll and then, uh, let's, let's talk about this idea of, um, how this actually works. So do you, do you feel like then what you're doing right now is, uh, really safe, but feels potentially risky or how how do you compare that with where, where you're at currently?
1: Uh, well, so one thing that's been really interesting, um, Is So I've kind of started publicly – I started working on this book in October of last year, of 2014, um, and I came up with a title maybe three months ago. So for about the last three months, I've been basically publicly talking about I'm writing a book called The End of Jobs, um, which without any context is a fairly – uh incendiary or like it it certainly grabs your attention like okay this is kind of a, a yeah, significant statement um and what's interesting is i've gotten the m- best job offers in the last 3 months that i've gotten in my entire life i've um in the last month specifically i've gotten two job offers which uh i mean which i would have you know i would have metaphorically killed for 3 years ago um and the people I've talked to, the people that are offering those jobs have done it for that exact same reason, which is, um, you know, they agree with the philosophy behind this increasing value of complex work. And they're more than willing to take on someone and offer I, that's the that's the person they're looking to hire in their company. And I can tell you all the entrepreneurs I consult with, all the entrepreneurs I hang out with, like those are the people they're looking to hire that as the people that are willing to do that more dangerous, um, more emotionally charged work. Um, or like, as you said, like they're the better compensated ones.
0: Interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that exact perspective before, but yeah, I mean that, that totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Who just curious at a complete curiosity, who, who's the person that, uh, that you're talking about, uh, you know, with the blog posts and the Humvee and.
1: It was, uh, Tom Morks. He oh, had Tom really? uh, Tom Mork has I've been mispronouncing his last name. Uh, yeah, I heard him on an interview with, uh, Alyssa Doucette from craft your content.
0: Interesting. So, okay. I know Tom. Um, yeah. Interacted with him a few different times. Very cool. Very cool. I didn't, I didn't know that I've not heard that. I've not heard him tell that story or anything else along those lines. Um, I went and did an interview with him on, uh, for his podcast actually. And, um, very cool.
1: All right. Yeah, Tom's a great guy. And,
0: and he's... Uh, I didn't realize he had... I, now, are you working with Tom? I know he works with a whole bunch of different authors.
1: I am. He's uh, he's helping me with the uh, the marketing of the book. Okay, very, very
0: cool. Um, I know he helped David Nyhill uh, too, and uh, geez, a whole host of other people at this point.
1: Yeah, uh, he he's worked with a lot of talented people. Um, and I, I think, you know very much to his credit because he does do um, very complex in that sense work that seems very risky. So that's, and that was part of the reason I wanted to work with him. I kind of looked at other people he'd worked with. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh man, like that was, you know, that was gutsy. Like that, you know, that particular, like the way you approached that um, market, like that was gutsy. And the first time I got on the phone with him actually, um, he kind of, I told him my marketing plan, explained it to him. Um, he looked back and he was like, mm, no, nah, it's like, you're kind of holding back. Uh, and he like, kind of reframed it for me and, um, gave me like a got you a way to approach the whole scenario. And I was like, okay, like, yeah, let's do it. It sounds good.
0: So uh, now you've got me curious. And I know that, uh, that are a little bit off topic from the book, but it's like the, the book behind the book to some degree. So what, what did he share with you? That helped you reframe it a little bit and say, hey, no, I need to go, you know, balls to the wall, all in type thing.
1: So I had initially started writing the book Um and I was just going to, I was going to write it and I was going to release it as kind of just um, a free thing for my existing audience. And that yeah. was my idea. I have, like you know, some readers and people that uh, follow my work and I was going to just send it out to them um, and spoke with a guy three or four months. He's like, no, he's like, you should. Like, you should do this for real. Like, this book is good. Um, You know, you should publish it. Publish it on Amazon. Like, do the whole, like, make it a book book. Charge, you know, $9.99 on Kindle and, you know, $18 on paperback. Um, I was like, okay, all right, I'll I'll do that. And then I I got on the phone with Tom and he was like, actually what you should do is uh, you should do both. Um, You should do it like a book book. You should make it like a real book that people would, you know, that five years ago would have been bought in, you know, Barnes and Nobles. Um, And you should give it away for free. Um, And so you should do all the marketing, all the outreach. um, And then, you know, you should also like give it away for free for uh, five days on Amazon to, you know, the people that have been following and the people that have supported And he was like, and you'll be able to impact a lot more people that way. Um, Both in terms of the marketing, it affects like who I can reach out to um, because it, you know, it's, a lot easier to ask someone to promote your free book than to promote your paid book. And then also in terms of um, the number of people who I can get the book in their hands, you know, it's free is the lowest barrier to entry possible. So um, he came back and he's like, no, you need to like do all the marketing and invest you know, in all the marketing. And then you also need to get away for free. And I was like, okay, like I like it. Let's do it.
0: I love it. That's great. That's a perfect example of why he's doing that.
1: Yeah, so, and that was, and I think it's, um, I run a couple masterminds, yeah. um, which are kind of these group of business owners, or uh, not necessarily even business owners, but people kind of unite around a goal, trying to make something happen. And so we get together and we talk um, every week about what we're working on, um, you know, how can we grow our businesses faster, how can we be more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really been interesting, I've been doing this for about two or three years, is The people who benefit the most uh, from those are the people who are most uh, aggressive in terms of calling other people out. Um, So the people that get on the call and when someone's like, "Well, you know, I I didn't really do this," they're like, "Well, why didn't you do it? Like, why are you avoiding this? Like, why why isn't this on the top of your priority list? Like, isn't this the thing that will move your business forward faster than anything else?" And invariably, this is like cold calling or. something that is like emotionally scary. Uh, And it's those people on the calls that I've organized that benefit the most, that other people refer friends to work with them. Um, They get new business opportunities created because they, I mean, they create a tremendous amount of value that like when you push someone um, into doing that complex work, like they see the benefits And so they're like, oh, well, yeah, if I can surround myself with this guy, he's going to keep pushing me. Um, And they're the ones, you know, those people that are calling everyone outside on the call and not in a a hateful way, but in a I want to push you forward faster way, um, are the ones that benefit the most uh, themselves. Hmm. I hadn't
0: thought about that. Um, See, you're making me do some complex work here, but I hadn't thought about that. But all the masterminds that I've been involved in, I've been that guy. And. Yeah, I've I've, I don't know, I've worked in HR for years and years and years. So by nature of the job, if you're halfway decent at it, you have to have that as a skill set, and you have to be great at that piece, being able to, um, I'm going to call it, call people out in a way that also shows you care type thing. Yeah. Um, but being able to do so blatantly and directly, uh, well, at the same time, they know that you, you know, you're doing it because they've got their back type thing. But I, I didn't really ever connect that. Um that's probably some of the reason I'm thinking of two or three situations now where I probably have benefited because that, that type of interaction in a mastermind group. So
1: huh. Yeah, and it's again going back to like the emotional work issue. Um it wasn't it wasn't something I did at first uh until I started to notice like I was I kept referring people to work with this guy. Yeah. And he was the guy that was like calling me out over and over. And I was like, yeah, like, you know, you should go work with him. Like, he's really, he's really good. Um, and like, I noticed myself doing it. I was like, why do I, like why, why do I keep referring people to him? And I was like, you know, because uh, he gets results. Um, and then I, I kind of started to gradually do it more and more myself on the calls yeah. and be the one pushing people. Um, and even, like, even having seen it happen over and over, where the people that push are the ones that um, – get all the benefit from being on those calls or get the majority of the benefit every time like before i'm about to say something i can like feel that um that sensation rise up of like don't say that like no one's gonna like you if you say that like they're gonna judge you if you say that like no one's gonna put you on the call next week if you say that um and it's always wrong but it's like it never goes away
0: (laughs) see i think that's what's been helpful for me i think sometimes i'm too stupid to filter that so it just gets out (laughs) But uh other other times in other situations then you know I feel that that fear rise up. Uh but but typically it's not in in those types of situations for me. Um but I guess that's been a fit, benefit. I just learned that's been a benefit to me. Um very cool. So th- this is totally down a different
1: different tangent, but it is. isn't Before we jump off the tangent, I will recommend – if anyone hasn't read The War of Art by uh, Steven Pressfield, it's kind of talking around this idea of emotional work and is uh, definitely one of my all-time five favorite book recommendations to give out people. It's a quick read and is incredibly powerful in terms of uh, finding and doing the emotional work.
0: I have to read – that book it is it's been on my list for over a year now and i haven't um guy named jody mayberry uh purchased me the do the work by stephen stephen pressfield yes and that's that one's been filtering it's uh, it's way up my reading list Uh, i think it's like five books away or something like that but uh i've absolutely got to read too many books in the world too many books in the world and we're talking about another great one. Part, right? part of the problem, not part of the solution. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> you're adding to the problem. But I think uh, what I like about all the discussion we've had, and then even you know when we we're emailing back and forth uh, several months ago uh, when we were talking about getting you on the podcast, um, I like how you are continuously adding value. And you know, case in point you know, I, th- I think I sent you an email back, uh, to the, to the effect. Cause you, you sort of cold called me to some degree, uh, for, for that. But even in that, in that email, you were adding value constantly. So like literally every interaction I've had with you has been adding value, which is why I was so excited to come on, have you come on and talk about your book in the first place. So, uh, so let's, so let's keep talking about that though. Um, this idea is entrepreneurship is a resource we've delved into that a little bit but we haven't fully explored that
1: yeah so um i think one thing that hung me up uh for a long time and is something i see a lot of other people get hung up on is um the way entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the popular press and the popular media is um kind of as this binary um, like you either are an entrepreneur or you aren't an entrepreneur people that are entrepreneurs sell um, multiple seven and eight and nine figure companies and the people that aren't um don't and that this is a this is a kind of a binary condition it's an identity level um, it's an identity level issue uh and that is something that I think is um just not true. Um, I think because we're kind of still very early on um, in the the connection economy or the entrepreneurial area, and there's a lot of words that buzz around. Um, it's just not clear what those scripts and paths are. Um, in the same way that in 1900 it wasn't really clear how to um, become a doctor. Like now we've developed all these systems around um, becoming a knowledge worker, like a doctor or a lawyer. You know, you go to school and you take these prerequisites and then you need to take the MCAT you need to score such such and such on the MCAT and you need to go to medical school and you need to be ranked such and such by your professors in order to get an internship. And like this script is now very clear. Um, But that wasn't a clear script uh, 100 years ago. Like there weren't necessarily certain prerequisites and you kind of had to like figure it out. And that's kind of what I see happening with um, entrepreneurship now is there's emerging pathways to acquire entrepreneurship. And that in much the same way as we're used to acquiring knowledge, you know, you go to high school, you go to college, you go to graduate school, and you slowly build your knowledge base. You take uh, certifications and you slowly build your knowledge base that entrepreneurship, that the act of doing this complex work, um, this emotional work, is equally a skill set and equally something that can be gradually invested in and acquired. Um, And that one of the amazing things about the age we live in, about the internet and about technology, is that uh, it's cheap. You know, it used to be you had to open a store on Main Street and take out a lease and buy a bunch of inventory. Um, And now you need a website, which is $15 a month in hosting, um, to write blog posts on. Um, And so there are scripts and paths emerging. one of those we talked about was, you know, kind of like apprenticeship. You know, you can go work for someone um, that is isn't an entrepreneurial business, that is an entrepreneur, um, and you can learn... Uh, how they run the business, the DNA of that business. What does that mean to be an entrepreneur? And then likewise, you see people that are entrepreneurs kind of slowly move around their path. Maybe they're in a job, and this is kind of my story. I was in an apprenticeship position, and then I transitioned out of that into uh, consulting around some of the things I was apprenticeship. So I acquired the skill set and some relationships and a network around e-commerce, and e-commerce marketing, and, you know, business systems. And so I started, okay, well, I'll go start my own thing, and I'm going to consult with other people on these issues. Um, And now I'm, you know, gradually working at becoming more entrepreneurial in that context, um, at launching products, um, at starting product lines, at building out a bigger team. Um, And this is not something that's binary in the yes or no, but this is something that anyone can start taking steps towards uh, today, tomorrow.
0: So if I am in the place where I want to start taking steps towards that, what would you suggest is, and I know we've got to wrap up here, um, and I'm uh, I, I'm toying with the idea of doing much longer format interviews because I keep getting to the end of one hour or so, give or take, and like wishing I would have had an extra half an hour, 45 minutes or something like yeah. that. but.
1: Um, I'm happy to stay on it, uh, as long as you like. I don't have anything right after this, so it's entirely up to you. Cool. I, I can go a few
0: minutes longer. Let's uh, let's do sure. that here. But if somebody is interested in getting started in that, and what are what are the first couple of things that you'd recommend that they do? And let's let's put it in some context. Um, if I am, and and I get, I'm trying to think of a couple of different situations I get all the time in in email format. Um, okay. So here's a good one. I used to work in HR. So, um, I get lots of people that are either formally in HR or are currently in HR that want to do something else or they want to you know, start a, start a side business or something else along those lines. So let's say that, you know, I'm in that place where uh, I'm working in HR and I want to start my own side hustle, uh, and start doing this different types of, of, uh, complex work. And move down this entrepreneurship path. What are one or a couple of things that you would recommend to get started? And I feel like we've talked about a couple already, but you know, what are the what are the one, two, three?
1: Yeah, it, it's uh, I guess it's kind of the paradox. That the tricky thing about answering this question is it's a it's a complex question, and that there isn't uh, there isn't a right answer, right? The irony like there's so was not many. <laughs> there's <laughs> so, there's so many directions you could go and, and none of them are right or wrong, yeah. uh, because it is, yeah you know, it, it is a very emergent, uh, scenario. Um, well, let's
0: change the question then. And let's say that it's uh it's your type of situation and, you know, you want to go from doing the types of things that, uh, that you're doing to, or you were doing, I guess I should say, you know, in, uh, uh, past past couple of jobs that you had and then you decide you want to write a book over again. So you've got some of this past experience, you know, you've been through this now, what would you do having already done some of this? How would you start? How would you get started?
1: If I wanted to write a book specifically or yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I guess I can, I can just tell you the story of what happened instead of talking about it theoretically. But, um, I was consulting uh, after I'd left my previous job. I was doing basically uh, digital marketing, consulting, and strategy. And uh, I went to this conference last October, um, and I'd been writing and kind of trying to build uh, a platform around my work and to create more opportunities. And that meant basically I was writing a blog post every week about like, here's some stuff I'm working on, and here's some stuff I'm... Uh, I'm thinking about as it relates to entrepreneurship and marketing. Um, and I went to a conference and I asked this guy the I "Go, you know, uh, Mike, I have this blog and I've, you know, I've got some readers. And I'm thinking about writing a book. Like, um, you know, what point? Like, how how big does the platform need to be before it's worth writing a book?" And uh, you yeah, true to form we were talking about earlier, he looks at me, he's like, isn't that just an excuse? Like, aren't you just making up excuses for putting off writing this book? Um, and I was like, well, now that you put it that way, like, yeah, I am. Um, and so I started writing the book the next day. Um, and I, I guess I generally find like my, my trajectory has been um, once I figure out what the next step is, or I figure out a good opportunity for the next step, I just like find little ways to start working on it. Um, so at the time, like I was still spending a lot of my time consulting. And so I would just wake up and I'd work on the book for, um, 30 minutes or an hour, first thing in the morning. And that was like an hour of my day. Um, and then I would go and I still had like the rest of the work I was doing and, um, the clients I was managing and the projects I was working on. Uh, and then every morning I would do a little, an hour, a little bit more and more, and then gradually, over time, I would just, it would like slowly transition. And um, maybe, you know, I was able to spend two hours a morning on it. And then eventually I was able to spend, you know, two hours a morning and like uh, a couple afternoons doing some more marketing activities. Um, and just figuring out like what that first small step is um, to getting started and getting momentum. And my experience has been as soon as you start to get a little bit momentum with a project, like the, the next steps kind of reveal themselves. And that almost always like the first step is like fairly self evident
0: hmm. so we're starting to wrap in what we've talked about before in sort of some of this hey um bias for action type things, and <laughs> the next step will the next step will appear once you get past the first step, but the funny thing is it doesn't even matter if the next step appears if you don't get past the first step, so
1: yeah. And, and I guess to give you a, like a really clean answer to your earlier question that yeah. I kind of dodged is, um, so what I did, and I was that person in that position, which I was in a job I didn't like, um, and I wanted to get out of it, but I didn't know the next thing to do, uh, and I started a blog, and that was how I solved that. I was like, okay, I'm just going to start a blog, um, and that was four years ago, and um I've been publishing pretty consistently, either weekly or um, every couple of weeks for the last four years, basically, um, because I didn't, I didn't know what the next thing to do was. But I figured, OK, well, if I talk about what I'm doing now, um, I can start to see opportunities. And that was something, you know, when I eventually did get the jobs uh, as an apprentice and as a digital marketer, and I could point back and look, hey, look, like for the last six months, I've been writing a blog post every week about like this stuff I was doing on kitchen furniture, um, and they're like, Oh, okay. And like, they could see my evolution. They could see my trajectory and they were willing to invest in me, um, and help teach me, help give me a platform to do that complex work from.
0: Blogs have a funny way of being very beneficial in a, in a whole bunch of different far reaching ways that I think aren't even intentional for a lot of different people. Like you're talking about, um, you know, it ended up being sort of a portfolio to some degree. And then I also think about that, you know, it really forces you to, with the act of writing in the first place really forces you to clarify what it is that you mean or how you think about different things or what you stand for or those, those types of things. But then it seems like there's even more benefits. So I don't know that we've talked tons on this particular show about this whole concept of starting a blog, but you know, since, since you brought it up, what are some of the other benefits that you have found just as, you know, since that was kind of your um, solution until you had a solution?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I think a podcast is a podcast or YouTube channel or what I, some way of sharing what you're doing uh, is just as beneficial, not specifically blogs um, but one of the other benefits I've found, um, and one of kind of like the mantras I tell myself in the back of my head is, uh, "Do things worth talking about." And one of the nice things about uh, a blog or a podcast is, like, between each episode or between each blog post, you have to have done something that was like worth writing about <laughs> on the blog. So there's like this like subtle sense of like pressure in the back of your mind. Like um, for two years, mine was I would just wake up Saturday mornings and. My rule was uh, no lunch until you publish a blog post. <laughs> Eventually, I got so hungry that I would just publish something. Um, if I was if I was delaying putting it off, um, but you know, I, I think I always had in the back of my mind, like when I was sitting there on like Tuesday or Wednesday, like you know, trying to figure out what I should do. I was like, well, just do something because, like, at least if you do something, you'll have something to write about on Saturday. Um, whereas, you know, it, if you're not, if you don't have any sort of accountability in that sense. Um, it's easier to go away with doing nothing
0: <laughs> or you'll find yourself, you know, all of the people who are on the voice or dancing with the stars or whatever else intimately, but you won't have anything that uh, is worth talking about that you've actually done. Yes. It's
1: very difficult to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> um, who is the person that called you out at the, at the conference?
1: Uh, Michael Cavell. He's a, uh, trader he has he's a site called trendfollowing.com. he gives uh he gives advice on stock market trading um and runs a business around he's written a number of books on it um it was he was talking about writing a book um not trading specifically and that was you know i was kind of like well at what point does it make sense to write a book and that was when he called me out and that's he's very brash that's very much his style
0: i was just curious um always, always interested in those story behind the story type things. So then what, what made you decide to literally start doing that the next day? Cause I, I love your story with that and totally agree with your advice, but what flipped the switch for you, um, as he was doing that or what, uh, what caused you to, to really realize that I get that he called you out on it, but you actually took action on it too
1: yeah well he kind of pointed out to me something that I, I've found to be true over and over, which is like um, one of the things I tell myself is start doing the work today you want to be doing tomorrow mm. um, and i knew uh, I knew I wanted to write um, I've always wanted to write i've always enjoyed writing and you know, I started writing a blog and not doing a podcast or writing a YouTube because I kind of uh, fall more to the writing side. That's always been something I've enjoyed. Um, and so he said, like, you know, if you want to start writing, like, well, start writing. Um, and so as soon as he, like, kind of said it that way and it became clear to me, like, well, if this is what I want to do eventually, um, I might as well just start now.
0: Interesting. I love that. So tell, tell us about, and you know, we're recording a little bit earlier and everything like that, but before we get wrapped up, tell us where we're going to be able to find the book, uh, tell us you know, how we can get how HTY series can get in their hot little hands um, and where they can find you or connect with you or learn more about you before we go. And then then, you know, anything else that uh, will give you some open space, I'm going to call it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the book will be available on Amazon. It's going to go live on June 30th, but, uh, this show should go live the, uh, middle of June. And when it's live, I'm going to be doing, uh, a free giveaway. So I have, I went through and kind of in the process of writing the book, uh, went back and visited all the books that had kind of made the biggest impact on me over the last, Uh, five years and picked the 67 books, which I found were most inspiring and most beneficial for me. And I want to give them all away. So I'm doing a giveaway of uh, 67 books for entrepreneurs. It's $1,300 worth of hardcover books. And you can enter, just leave your email. It's taylorpearson.me slash winbooks, W-I-N books. And Taylor Pearson is T-A-Y L O R P E A R S O N, uh, and I'm sure you'll you'll link to that if uh, they can't remember yeah, it. Yeah, we'll link to that. In uh, I have a terrible memory, so I know I wouldn't. Um, and then, if you want to talk to me, you can email me. Uh, my name is, or my email is Taylor Taylor Pearson. and then I love to hang out on Twitter, and I am at C Taylor M Pearson.
0: That is perfect hey thanks for staying a little bit longer and thanks for thanks for contacting me thanks for taking the taking the initiative and contacting me in the first place and i uh, i mentioned I get contacted all the time now that the show's grown a bit and and things like that but really absolutely loved w- from the very beginning the types of things that uh, that you are doing work on so man i really appreciate you spending a few minutes coming on and talking with us about it
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Scott. I I appreciate you being generous with your time and having me on the show.
0: All right, man. We'll talk to you later. Bye.
1: Hey,
0: thanks so much for hanging around with us. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. It was a good one. And next week, it's going to be even better. I'll tell you about that in a second, though. But first... Thanks again for all of the ratings on iTunes and Stitcher. And I got to say thank you to a couple of people in particular, because we've gotten a bunch of ratings over the last month. And I want to say thank you to Aaron be Real for a five-star rating. I want to say thank you to College Kid 44 for a five-star rating. I want to say thank you to Batman and Rodden for a five-star rating. And I'll read that one off. It says, Scott does a great job of getting interviewees to pick apart their processes for career success. He knows the questions we want answered and asks them. I'm not sure what else we'd want out of a host. Really recommend to those who are looking to pick up their work life and make a change. Thanks so much for the kind words. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And thanks again. Now, take a listen to next week's episode.
1: For somebody who's an employee, which is the speech I give to every single one of my employees when they're in the interviewing process is, yeah. don't be good, don't be great, be irreplaceable to me. It can go either way, but it is way better if you actually love what you're doing.
0: That's Andrea Lake. You get to hear her amazing story of where she started out in entrepreneurship at 18 years old and had learned some hard lessons about only going into businesses that she thinks are fun and at the same time. How mentorship has played such in a really important role along the way. Plus, she also tells you how to be able to get some of those mentorships and how she went about it for herself, too. So, tune in next week and we'll get to talk all about that. Right now, I'm out. <laughs>
1: I listened to a few of your shows and kind of um, put together a brief outline. We don't need to go by the outline necessarily, but I just like to have something. And you know, like with the typical book tour, it turns into like you, you hear the same person. They say the same stories over and over. So I, I kind of tried to craft a little more specific to, to your audience. So if they hear me on another podcast or another blog or whatever, they don't get the same story. And I I sort of borrow Seth Godin's linchpin definition of like an entrepreneur is someone who creates and connects and inspires. And it doesn't necessarily mean you own your own LLC or whatever. It means you're creating systems and you're innovating and you're doing um, entrepreneurial work.